0: We're going to begin a brief series of studies in the Psalms leading up to the Christmas period. And then just before Christmas, we'll start a new series in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, in preparation for uh, the actual uh, Christmas uh, period and then continuing on into the year. But uh, for the next couple of Sundays, we thought we would teach some Psalms because the Psalms are always relevant. I uh, have to admit that early in my years, I always thought that the psalms were for sissies. They were for people who had emotional problems or who cried a lot. And uh, people read psalms when they were in deep trouble. And since as a young man, I was never particularly in deep trouble. I never could see the relevance of the psalms. But I understand better now what the psalms are for. At least I hope I do. The psalms are basically folk songs, they're expressions of the experiences of men of God. They are—they're very much like some of the folk songs that were written back in the '60s. Some of them lamentations, some of them expressions of joys, of joy. Uh, at sometimes, uh, sometimes they uh, are declarations of, of, uh, of praise, thanksgiving to God for what He's done, and other times cries of the heart that can hardly be articulated. The difference, however, between the folk songs that you have in our collection of psalms and the folk songs of the 60s in the protest movement is that these are folk songs of faith. In every case, they lead us to confidence in God, though they may begin with lamentation. They always end with a note of assurance and confidence and thanksgiving for God's adequacy. There's always that note of praise. In fact, the Jews always refer to this collection as praises, tehalim, praises, because they're basically expressions of of our appreciation for what God is and what he's able to do in all the, the circumstances of life. Now, some of these songs came right out of personal experience, as we know. David and Moses and others wrote about their experience. They wrote poetry to commemorate their feelings, their struggles, and their faith. And then these uh, these songs became a part of corporate worship, very much as our songs, our hymns do uh, today. Uh, I was thinking at uh, Pastor Buck's funeral as we sang, It is well with my soul what a, an adequate expression of our, uh, of our state of being, even in time of, of trial. And as a body of believers there... We were singing a song that expressed together our feeling at a time like that. That particular song came out of one man's experience, a man named Horatio Spafford, who uh, put his family on a ship uh, one day to send them off to Europe and then discovered some weeks later that the ship had sunk and all hands had been lost. His entire family uh, had gone down at sea. And he wrote the words of that hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now that was Spafford's experience. And when we gather together and sing that hymn, it's ours as well, you see. Now that's what the Psalms are. They begin with one man's struggles and hurts, pain, and and his breakthrough to faith. And then we sing them together as expressions of our faith as well. That's why it's so easy to identify with these psalms. And as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate them because they're, they're sometimes the only adequate expression that we can make in a time of pressure and trial. Now, Psalm 1 is the introduction to the collection, and it, is, it sets the theme for us, as introductions uh, frequently do. Let's read it. Psalm 1. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, you'll notice this is a beatitude. It begins, Blessed is the man. And as such, it sounds very much like uh, the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are you when men persecute you and speak evil against you, for my name's sake. Uh, The word blessed doesn't mean much to us. It's one of those religious terms that we use sometimes without thinking. But essentially the word means happy. And when we understand it in that way, it gives this uh, psalm particular relevance. Because what the psalmist is doing here is giving us the secret of happiness. And who doesn't want to be happy? I don't know of anyone who wants to go through life absolutely miserable. We all want to be happy. And this is a psalm that reveals the secret of happiness. He tells us how to be blessed, how to be fortunate, how to be happy. Now, you'll notice he begins with a negative note. The happy man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. There are three classes of individuals that are uh, envisioned here. Actually, one class seen in three ways. There are the wicked, which uh, essentially means the ungodly. And we're accustomed to thinking of wicked people as notorious criminals, muggers, people who snatch purses from poverty-stricken elderly women, murderers, rapists, drug pushers, infamous criminals like uh, Adolf Hitler or Idi Amin. But uh, the word essentially means the ungodly, People who have little or no time for God. The word could be used to describe men in our community that are upstanding, fine, productive businessmen who simply are so busy making a living or putting their kids through school or building uh, their business that they have no time for God. They've just ruled him out of their life. And they're essentially self-sufficient. They're ungodly. They don't have any time. And then there are those that he describes here as sinners. The word means to, to miss the mark. There's an interesting use of this term in Samuel where some of Benjamin's sharpshooters are described as those who can sling at a hair and never miss, never sin. That's the word that's used here. It means to miss the mark, to shoot at something and miss it. And all of us are familiar with that activity, knowing what we ought to be, and then failing to measure up. We aim, but we miss. And then there are the mockers. And these are not necessarily the notorious atheists and the people who, who uh, are very public about their unbelief, people like Madeline Murray and others. Mockers are simply people who are self-sufficient and proud of their ability to do what they do by themselves and without God. I ran into a mocker the other day in the desert, amiable, gentle uh, man out, out there who's lived in the desert all of his life, and we began to talk a little bit about Idaho history and eventually got around to talking about his relationship to the Lord, and his comment was, I really don't have any need for that sort of thing. You can see what I've done, and he called my attention to his ranch and his what he had accomplished, and he said, I don't need anything. And in biblical terms, he's a mocker, someone who is self-sufficient and proud of what he has done by himself and for himself. So these uh, three terms, wicked, sinners, and mockers, simply describe people who have moved God out of the center of their lives. They've come to the conclusion that that they don't need him. They could be political leaders, well-liked, uh, espousing popular causes, they could be a member of the right to political group, they could be teachers in our schools, sensitive, outgoing people, but essentially they're people who are going in alone without God. Now, he begins on this negative note because from childhood we learn from these people. The, the people that he classifies here as the ungodly, or the sinners, or those in the New Testament are classified as the world. The world is a community of self-dependent, self-sufficient people. Instead of putting putting God in the center of their life, the one who's made them, the one who gives life and breath and everything that we have, they've moved God out of the center of their life and put themselves there. And they teach us that philosophy. They teach us through their movies. They teach us through their books. And I don't just mean books that are obviously evil. Their counsel comes in through Sesame Street. It comes in through Lawrence Welk. It comes in through little golden books that our, re- that our children read. You see, they don't necessarily advocate things that are obviously evil. But what we hear from the time we're a little bitty tadpoles is that you can do it by yourself, you have what it takes. All you have to do is reach down inside for some resource that's that's there, and you can make it. You can do it. And they teach us to live without God and without his word. I have a young philosopher friend who one day was reading to Joshua when he was about three or four years old, and he was reading a little golden book to him. And I was in the kitchen. I could hear him reading the story, and he came to one part that said, Fun is good, and good is fun. And he stopped, and he said, Joshua, that's hedonism. And he's right. You see, Joshua was only about four, and he couldn't appreciate how profound that statement was. But if if we believe that fun is good as a philosophy of life, we're hedonists. Hedonists are people who pursue pleasure at all costs. Pleasure is the highest good. And if we believe that fun is good as an all-pervasive philosophy of life, then we've become hedonists because there are a lot of things that are fun that are not at all good from a Christian standpoint. So you see that this philosophy comes in on all fronts. You really can't guard against it. When people tell me I don't allow my children to go to movies because they're worldly, that's fine. That's a, that may be a proper position to take. But you see, what we need to realize is that the world comes in from every angle. And we really can't prevent our children or ourselves from hearing these things. What we need to do is prepare our our kids, our children, for life. And that's what he's doing here. He says, The man is happy who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. We don't walk in the counsel that they give or stand in their way, that is, take a stand according to their counsel, or sit in their seat, that is, take up their attitude, but positively his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Negatively, he says, don't listen to the counsel of the world, even though it may come from people that the world approves, people that have degrees, people who seem to be worldly wise. Don't listen to them. Evaluate what they have to say. But happy is the man who delights in the law of God. The law of the Lord here is simply the scriptures, the Old Testament, as they knew it, and for us, the Bible. Happy is the man who, del- who takes delight in the Word of God because he understands that the Word of God talks about life. The Word teaches us how to deal with anxiety and fear and guilt and boredom and loneliness. It teaches us how to use our, our bodies in God's intended way. It's a, a sort of instruction manual that came along with the, with the mechanism. We're all familiar with instruction books that tell us how to use what, what we purchase, and that's what the Bible is. It tells us what makes life easier for us. Life is hard as it is without, uh, without taking God out of the, the center of things. But when we remove him from the center of our life, it makes life even harder. As Scripture puts it, the way of the transgressor is hard. You see, the reason... The Lord wants to spare us from certain things. The reason he designates certain things as sin is because they're harmful to us as people. The Lord didn't just make up a list of ten things that were illegal, immoral, and fattening and impose them upon us. That's not his character. Certain things are violations of his character because God knows that if we violate violate his character, we always suffer for it. Life becomes hard. I bought a sweater the other day, and it had a little tag inside, and it didn't seem to have any useful purpose, so I ripped it out. And uh, then I started looking at it, and it said, if you wash this sweater, you have to turn it inside out, and you have to wash it at a certain temperature and only so long, and you can't dry it, you have to place it on a towel to dry and so forth. And I thought, my goodness, I certainly am glad I kept that little tag, because if I hadn't, I would have ruined the sweater for sure, or Carolyn would have. The tag told me how to use that sweater so that I could enjoy it. And that's what the law of the Lord does. It tells us how to live life as God intended it so we won't destroy ourselves and make life even harder than it is. So the author says, the happy man is one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, the word meditation here is not the same word as the sort of meditation that you know of from Eastern religions—simply to chant a meaningless uh, word or sound—the word "meditates" mean to, means to study, to think deeply about the implications of the word, to read the word and think through its implications for me as an individual, to see in it God's provision for life and God's instruction for life, and to take it seriously it's a good thing to listen to teachers on the radio and to listen to tapes and to read books about the Bible, but that's no substitute for the Word itself. God wants us as individuals to take seriously His Word to us. We're fortunate in our age to have a completed Bible that, that, we, can, that we have in our homes. I have two or three around my house, and most of us do. When, when the psalmist wrote these words, they didn't have access to the written Word to the extent that we do today how much more responsible, therefore, we are to spend time individually looking into the Word, reading it, thinking it through in terms of our needs, taking it seriously, you see. A lot of of believers, I think, believe simply because they hear the Word taught or they read the Bible, even regularly, or may even memorize it, that they fulfill this requirement. But there's more required. It's not simply a matter of of reading the word or hearing it read or hearing it taught, we need to take it seriously and think it through in terms of our own needs. For instance, the Lord's word about getting along with others is very profound. He says, if you, uh, if you see a brother who has a moat in his eye, before you try to get the moat out of your brother's eye, take the beam out of your eye. Now, if you stop and think about that for a moment, that's a very profound word. That's the key to getting along with everyone. Most of our problems in communicating with with friends and spouses and others, getting along with them, is that we tend to blame everyone for our problems. It's their fault. It's my husband who's so irritable and defensive. It's what he does that makes me the way I am. If he would just change, then I'd be different. But you see, the Lord turns that around. He says, no, you change. You take the beam out of your eye. You deal with yourself first instead of blaming the other person and looking for fault in the other individual. Instead of being so hard on them, if you're going to be hard on anyone, be hard on yourself. Look at yourself first and deal with, with the things that cause the relationship to break down. And you see, if in in those times when we're Having difficulty getting along, if we'll stop and remember God's word and take it seriously and delight in it, meditate in it, then it'll do its work. Then we'll be, as he says, like a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That's one of the greatest symbols, I think, in the New Testament. All of us know what a tree is like. No one has to describe one, but when you think of one of these uh, uh, majestic uh, Douglas firs up in the mountains, it evokes uh, an image that you can't produce with words. There's majesty and beauty and stability. These trees are untouched by circumstances. They're not bent by storms, they're not blown over by by uh, the winds that that blow around them, they're sturdy, they're stable, there's beauty and strength. Those are the characteristics of a tree. And the psalmist says if we delight in the Lord and in His Word and we put our roots down into the Lord and His Word, then we're like a tree. We have beauty and stability. There's fruitfulness. And when we think of fruit, we always think of the character of the Lord Himself, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Self-control. Those are all characteristics that come from the Lord's life within us. We can't produce them ourselves. And secondly, he says uh, it's it's like a tree whose leaf does not wither in a time of drought. There's always vitality and strength there. This is the kind of person that's exciting to be around because they exude life. They're not always depressed and bowed down by the pressures of life. They're not always draining the people around them of energy and strength. They give life. There's strength and stability, sturdiness of character there. I was talking to a young man yesterday who is uh, having a very difficult time financially with his business. He's thousands of dollars in debt, doesn't know how he's going to get out, through no fault of his own. It's just uh, the way things are these days. And he told me if this had happened to me six months ago, I would have gone absolutely mad. But he said, I'm learning. I'm learning how adequate the Lord is. And I can be what God intends me to be, regardless of my circumstances. I can be patient. I can be self-controlled. I can be loving to my family instead of irritable, and harsh, and on edge. You see, that's a man who's discovered the secret of beauty and strength. He has his roots down. You see, if you look at a tree, you don't see the source of its power. There's a hidden resource. A tree has its roots down in the soil and it draws its strength from those roots. And my question to me and to you is, where do we have our roots? What are our roots into? Is it into the world and the world's way of thinking and their approach to life? Or do we have it down into the Word and in the Lord and we're drawing upon his strength? If so... The author says, we're like a tree, yielding fruit in season, we're fruitful, our leaf doesn't wither, we're vital, and whatever we do will prosper. That doesn't mean we'll necessarily prosper financially, we may not make it to the top of our company, but that's not necessarily what God is after anyway. If he gives you that, give thanks, but it may, but we know what he does desire, and that's manhood and womanhood, character, display of the, a display of the life of, of Christ, wherever we go. And if we have our roots down in Him, we'll prosper. But in verse four he says, "Not so the wicked." It's interesting. He dismisses in, in two or three words what he has said in three verses above. "Not so the wicked. None of the above. The wicked are not like that. Those who are counting on themselves. There's not the fruitfulness. There's not the stability and vitality. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Those of you that have worked in harvest fields know that there's absolutely no nothing more worthless than chaff. It has no substance or content or weight or value, it just is blown away. And the author says that's that's the way you characterize the man who does not have his roots down in the Lord. He may be successful in his business. He may drive a big car. He may have a big house. He may be a big wheel who moves in big circles. But if he's never done any of the things for which God has called him, never fulfilled any of the purposes for which God made us, he's just like chaff. Therefore, he says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. In other words, he has no standing, and the Jews knew very well that there was a judgment coming, and this passage does point forward to the time when, when all of us will stand before the Lord. But uh, the deeper concern of the psalmist here is to establish that they have no standing now. There's no stability or strength in their lives, even though they have everything that the world would consider useful. They're like chaff, no value, no weight, no content. There have been a lot of books written lately about the so-called 40-year itch and what happens to men in their 40th year and on when they begin to get restless and they do all sorts of strange things, begin to dress like 20-year-old men and and, uh, leave their wives that they've been faithful to for years. And I believe I know why. It's because they're like chaff and they know it all of a sudden it dawns on them that nothing that they've invested their life in is ultimately worthwhile. And this deep sense of emptiness descends on them. And they believe, if I can just somehow recapture my youth and start all over again, then I can do the things that I know will ultimately fulfill me. But the psalmist says, no, it'll just be a rerun of the same thing. They're just like chaff. And all of us would be like chaff, you see, apart from the grace of God. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And why is this true? Because the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The only reason we're happy is because of the Lord and his life in us. He's the one who gives us what we need to face life and its demands. That's the only reason. It's because the Lord watches us. It's not because we're particularly attractive or good or worthwhile that things go that way. It's simply because the Lord watches over us. But he says the way of the ungodly will perish. You'll notice he doesn't say the ungodly will perish. It's their way that perishes. In other words, their way pinches out. Life becomes less and less satisfying and fulfilling. Have you ever been on one of these roads up in the mountains? You begin on a surface road and then they turn into gravel and finally they're just a bumpy, rocky road and eventually they become a cow trail and if you follow the cow trail, it just pinches out to nothing. And you see, that's his point. That's the way life is for the man who tries to go it alone without God. Life just pinches out and it has less and less meaning. Thoreau described that as destination sickness. Men have arrived, they have everything they want, and they don't want anything they have life is just empty and meaningless, and they're miserable. But you see, life doesn't have to be that way. The psalmist says, happy is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his word day and night. He's like a tree. His beauty, strength of, of character, stability. Why? Because his roots are down in the Lord. I wrote a poem the other day which he passed on to me. On Psalm 1. He says, I think I shall never see a life as lovely as a tree, a life whose hungry heart is pressed against God's sweet and loving breast, a life who looks to God all day and lifts his happy heart to pray, a life that may in its time bear God's sweetest fruit beyond compare, within whose bosom God does reign and intimately abides within. Poems are devised by men like me, but only God. Can make you a tree. You want to be a tree? That's such a significant symbol. Isaiah describes the people of God as an oak of righteousness, one of these uh, great big live oak trees that are about eight feet through at the base, stable, strong, able to resist anything, and filled with beauty of character. Well, the question is, where do we have our roots? Where are your roots? Are they in the Lord? If so, then you'll be happy. Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> if you've never put your roots down in the Lord. You can do that this morning. The Lord Jesus died for us so we could have access to God and have this kind of relationship. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. He's promised if we ask Him to come into our life and provide the stability and the strength, the beauty of character that we long for, and to give us satisfaction and fulfillment. Ask Him to come in if you haven't. And if over the past months you've fallen into the world's way of thinking and you've been walking in the counsel of the ungodly, just tell Him you want to be like a tree. Put your roots back down into Him. Let's stand together as we conclude in prayer. Father, thank you. For disclosing to us the secret of life and happiness. Thank you that you're worthy to receive honor. We thank you for all that you've done for us, for all that you are to us, for your adequacy today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Being what God has called us to be. I don't know about you, but I know I ought to love people in this manner. But I have a very difficult time loving people. I, uh, I can isolate myself from people with the greatest of ease. I can overlook their needs. I can be harsh. I can be cynical. It's not easy for me to love. I need, I need a resource to count on to be loving. And that's what Paul supplies for us in verses 13 and 14. A series of commands. First, be on the alert. Keep your eyes open. Watch out for false teaching because it's abroad. Jesus said, as we get closer to his coming, we can expect to find more and more false teachers. It's to be expected. Some of you will remember some months ago the impact that John Todd had on the Christian community. This young man who supposedly was a member of the Illuminati and an ex-witch, warlock, and his tapes were being circulated widely through the church. I had a number of people who sent me tapes and asked me to listen to this, the amazing testimony of this young man. And as we now know, he was a fraud. He's been uncovered as a as a, a, just a, a fraud. He was lying, and yet we as Christians were gullible. We weren't on the alert. Paul saying, first of all, be alert. And then secondly, stand firm in the faith. That's the counterpart. That's the reason you're alert, because you want to stand firm in the faith. The faith here is the faith which was delivered by the prophets and the apostles, that is, the Word of God. If someone comes into your assembly and they teach something contrary to the Word of God, or they come over the, your, in your home through radio or television... It doesn't matter how charismatic they may be, how powerful, how dynamic, how loving they may appear, how godly they may seem to be, how many miracles they work, how many signs they do, what visions or dreams they see. If they say something contrary to the Word of God, reject it. Stand firm in the faith that the apostles and prophets have given to you and act like men. Now, you can even say that to women be a man. And somehow we automatically know what it means. No one has to spell it out for us. We need to be men. We need to stand tall like men. We need to exhibit our Christian manhood in all circumstances. You know, man is the only part of God's creation that acts contrary to his nature. We alone of all creation can be unmanly. We can act in ways that are contrary to what we really are. C.S. Lewis once pointed out that uh, you would never think of clapping an alligator on the back and saying, come on, be an alligator. Because alligators always act uh, in accordance with their nature, but man doesn't. We sometimes are not manly. And Paul tells us what we have to do to be manly. In the last imperative, in verse 13, we have to be made strong. Unfortunately, the, the translations obscure the fact that the verb is passive, It's not be strong. That's what the world tells us. Get tough. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's a a good secular strategy. Be strong, but that's not the word of God. God says be strengthened. Be made strong in Christ. As Paul puts it to Timothy, who of all men needed to be strong, says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need to be strengthened by Christ Jesus, by his life who indwells us. You see, that's what makes us men and women. A.W. Tozer said, if you ask me why I became a Christian, it's precisely because I wanted to be a man. It takes God to make a man. It's his power in us that makes it possible for us to be loving and to be supportive and to encourage others. And that's why Paul goes on in verse 14 to say, let all that you do be done in love. That's the reason for everything. You may have to correct. You may have to rebuke. You may have to discipline. Sometimes love is tough. Sometimes love is tender. But Paul says, whatever you do, let the reason be love. And that's the mark of a man. That's what distinguishes us as God's men and women. We love and we give and we serve and we don't care about ourselves and what happens to us. We let God worry about us. He's adequate for that. And we get concerned with others. You know, there is a so-called lost saying of Jesus. It's not really lost. There are a lot of books that have been in circulation in the last several years that are purportedly collections of the lost sayings of Jesus. They're not. But there is one saying of Jesus that's not found in the Gospels, but the apostles remembered it. And Paul knew it. It's found in Acts 20. Paul quotes Jesus, and he says, The Lord said it's more blessed to give than receive. Do you believe that? To be blessed means to be happy. It makes you happier to give than receive. Now, the world has turned that around. What makes you happy is to receive love. If if your husband just loved you the way he ought to love you, then you'd be happy, or your wife, or your children, or your parents. Or if someone would just give me some money, I'd be happy. Or if someone would give me a car or give me a coat or take me out to dinner or be my friend, then I would be happy. But, you know, that's a bottomless pit. There's no end to what we want if we receive it. We just want more. You'll never be happy getting. And that's why Jesus said, You'll be happier giving than getting. You'll be far happier giving away your home and giving away your money and your clothes and your time and your energy and your love and everything that you have. That's what makes us successful. That's what makes us happy. That's what it means to be a man or a woman in Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father. That you're the one who makes it all possible. Thank you for your strength. We want to be strengthened by it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.